believe, fake 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 believe, F is for fake believe, F is for fun, F is for fun, F is for fake Little Lord Fauntleroy, please. F is for fun. F is for fun. F is for fake belief. 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 F is for fake belief. Why don't we just, why don't we just, why don't we just start a new thing while we're waiting to build enthusiasm for the old thing that we think we ought to be doing again or more. If we can't quite build the enthusiasm for that old thing, let's start a new thing. That's okay. This is what it is. The new thing is storytelling, storybook time, story hours. Well, it won't be an hour. It'll be however long it takes to do the reading. I've uh, been thinking about this for quite a while now. And it just feels like in in Open Lines Radio, and maybe in podcast land in general, I don't know how much content there is out there for kids. I mean, all of us grown-ups spend time educating ourselves, choosing what we're interested, interested in hearing, you know, listening to deep thoughts of our peers, and content that is in our, you know, interest profile, encourages us and inspires us, and you know, resonates with us. We have that gift of that with self-selection from a really diverse and extensive, almost infinite pool of content. But I don't know if there's a whole lot out there for kids. It just feels like there isn't because I feel like I would have heard about it by now if there was. So I was just thinking, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read stories. 
I'm going to read my stories. I'm going to read from the storybooks that I have laying around my house, you know, um, books from my childhood that I've retained either for sentimental reason or because I like to use um, uh, picture books for design inspiration research. I just find the art and illustration extremely um, high quality. Oftentimes the art in children's books is usually very uh, high quality and uh, strong, strong, powerful communication usually, powerful imagery because it's designed to draw children in and explain things to children and so uh, just to say the, the, the volume on the messages is turned up a little bit or things are refined, slightly polished, I guess. I have a few books here, <clears throat> and I don't know which one I'm going to start with first. Maybe, um, yeah, I'm going to start with The Unicorn in the Lake, because that was the first one I picked up off the shelf when I was um, grabbing them from the living room earlier. Um, and this is Hannah, by the way. I don't know if I even said that. Um, not that it matters. I'm just here to read stories. So this is The Unicorn and the Lake by Mariana Mayer, and it's illustrated by Michael Haig. So if you want to look it up online, you can look up that particular version and find some of the pictures um, to read along. I'm going to read the whole thing. The dedication in the beginning says, To my sister, Gabrielle Amarati. That's from the author, Mariana Mayer. And to Nikki, M.H., that's from the illustrator, Michael Haig. So, um, here's a little introduction from the author before we read the actual story. And you can tell that I've had this book since I was a kid, seriously, because it has one of those like personal library stickers on the inside that says, mine, all mine, and it's like Garfield holding a book. <laughs> you know, the cartoon Garfield the Cat? I guess I liked Garfield when I was little. Alright, here we go. The legend of the unicorn can be traced back to pagan times. In 400 BC, Cedius no, see, how the heck do you say that? Freaking Greek words, I swear. C-T-E-S-I-A-S. Cecius. 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 I don't know how to say that word. I better look it up later. This is going to be the fun, the, the fun part of this game, is making sure I pronounce the words correctly. All right, kids, keep me on my toes. Make sure I say it right. And if I say it incorrectly, that's all right. We're all trying here. Okay, so, a Greek writer and physician to the Persian court reported sightings of this creature by Persian travelers to India. The unicorn is the only fabulous beast that does not seem to have been conceived out of human fears. In even the earliest references, he is fierce yet good, selfless yet solitary, but always mysteriously beautiful. He could be captured only by unfair means, and his single horn was said to neutralize poison. The unicorn is mentioned in the Old Testament, and during the Middle Ages, passages re 
refer to, referring to him were frequently cited by theologians, encyclopedists, and storytellers. By A.D. 300, the unicorn was fully adopted by the Christian world. Indeed, he had become a symbol of Christ himself. My tale, The Unicorn and the Lake, is based on three specific sources. The Physiologus, an early Greek book of natural history, was written before A.D. 400 and elaborated upon in the centuries that followed. A later version, written between the 12th and 15th centuries, describes the value of the unicorn's horn in absorbing poison and mentions a great lake where the animals gathered to drink. This book exists today in countless versions, most commonly known as bestiaries. In 1389, Johannes de Hesse, a priest of Utrecht, claimed to have visited the Holy Land and to have stopped at the river Mara. His observations are recorded in the Itinerarius, and this is a quote, and even in our times it is said, venomous animals poison that water after the setting sun, so that the good animals cannot drink of it. But in the morning, after the sunrise, comes the unicorn and dips his horn into the stream, driving the poison from it, so that the good animals can drink there during the day. This have I seen myself. My final source of material for the tale was the seven unicorn tapestries that are part of the Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection at the Cloisters. In the second of these tapestries, the unicorn and the fountain, the use of animal and plant mythology further emphasizes the borrowing of this legend. Each animal and plant depicted has an association with either the unicorn or his enemy, the serpent. The stag was believed to devour serpents but he needed fresh drinking water to quench the poison of their venom. The Theseus flower and the common agrimony, hempy, were used against poisoning. The blue-flowered sage was planted to repel snakes. The woodhaven was cultivated to keep evil away. Today it is said that the unicorn never existed. However, it is marvelously clear that when the unicorn was first described and centuries later when the tapestries were woven, everyone believed in unicorns. That's the introduction by Mariana Mayer. Here's a picture of a beautiful woodland landscape painted in muted watercolor. And there's a long build small bluebird featured in the foreground and a branch in the lower right hand corner and next to a large rather gnarled looking tree is a very proud figure of a sterling white unicorn it looks like a horse except for that very long single spiraled horn sticking out from the crown of its head and it's got a very um, unusual feature of a long chin beard, almost like um, uh, what you would see on a billy goat. That's the first picture. Once, long ago, all animals lived in harmony. There was no strife among them, and they were able to speak together in a common language. At that time, mysterious and wonderful events took place, and the noble unicorn dwelt with the other animals in the lower lands.
The second picture shows a wooded landscape, but this time the unicorn is active and leaping over a fallen log. There are some brightly colored mushrooms, and in the long, faraway distance are a couple of woodsmen that look like hunters. In fact, one of them is holding a bow and arrow. The unicorn was pure white, as white as mountain snow, and his ivory horn was a magnificent spiral. Men believed the unicorn was immortal. They hunted him relentlessly, for it was said that his horn possessed magical powers. At last, the unicorn was forced to flee high up into the mountains to escape the hunter's arrows. On this next page, there's two rabbits and two mice in a little plot of uh, grass nibbling on some herbs and flowers just gently and calmly. And on the facing page is um, a cluster of branches with lots of leaves in fall colors. And there's a large, large, very toothy red serpent with a small, narrow, yellow, glittering eye. And um, I'll say um, almost like feathery trailing bits of flesh along the side of its head and neck and then um, it almost looks like bristles or tentacles all along the spine of the serpent it 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 looks not like any snake i could imagine unless it was like an underwater sea snake perhaps but it's not underwater it's up in the trees beautiful image His vanishing caused magic to pass from the land. Soon all living things forgot the unicorn, and animals lost the power to speak to others unlike themselves. Thereafter, the bird spoke only to birds, the rabbit only to rabbits, the rat only to rats, and so it was throughout the animal kingdom. During this time of forgetfulness, many kinds of animals lived along the banks of a large lake. Though they could not speak together, the lake was vital to them, and they willingly shared it. Their only enemy was the serpent. He preyed upon them mercilessly, casting a shadow over their lives. The lion, the leopard, and the stag fought the serpent boldly. Other animals, lacking strength, defended themselves with cunning. The pheasant distracted the serpent with his brilliant feathers, to give his family time to flee. The partridge covered her eggs with dust and laid sharp, thorny shrubs over her nest to hide it. The weasel used her keen eyes to watch for the serpent, and the birds changed their sweet songs to cries of alarm to warn of the serpent's approach. In this picture, the tree is filled with a variety of different birds, almost, um, it just seems, uh, a typical gathering of many, many different types of birds all in a single um, group of branches. And there's a nest with a clutch of eggs in it. And the, the serpent is threatening from the corner, baring teeth and slathering jaws. Very uh, intense interaction. On this following page is a smooth, cloudy pool of water that must be the lake that's described. There are large herons or cranes 
flying and also standing on the shore and also standing in the water drinking or hunting for fish. There's a some sort of monkey or chimpanzee, some sort of um, uh, ape-like creature sitting by the edge of the water and there's the serpent curling around and approaching from behind him from the tree with his teeth bared. But in time a greater danger, a sadness, came to the forest. For months there had been no rain. Slowly the lake began to recede and the banks turned muddy. The animals struggled vainly to reach the shallow water. Many were so weak from thirst that they could no longer fight off the serpent when he attacked. Still no rain came. The fish were dying without water. They gasped desperately, then finally lay still and lifeless beneath the burning sun. The heron, the duck, the water rat, and other animals who fed on the water life began to hunt in vain for other food to eat. But the venomous serpent was glad of the other's trouble. All the better for me, he thought wickedly. Now I will not have to hunt so hard for my food. This next image is very dark. You can tell night has come to the land. There is um, a very close-up image in the foreground of a large bullfrog sitting on a fallen log, and there's um, mushrooms sprouting out of it. There's stars and moon in the distance, and a reflection of moonlight on the water. <clears throat> Again, indicating night. The valley, too, began to dry without rain, and a drought fell over all the forest. The clinging green foliage that had once covered the forest floor died, and the ground cracked under the feet of the animals. Leaves from the tall black walnut, beech, and oak trees turned brittle and dropped to the dusty earth. The animals grew more desperate as each day passed. They knew that without rain to fill the lake, they would surely die. Night after night, the frog, who had lost his watery home, croaked mournfully for rain, but none came. At last, leaving their natural differences aside, all the animals came together to call to the rain clouds. Ignoring the scornful serpent, they looked up at the pale moon and almost cloudless sky and called for rain to bring life back to their lake and forest. And this image is, I mean, it's just filled with an abundance of animals. The illustration here is beautiful. Um, I struggled to name all of them, but I can see bear and elephant and zebra and camel and giraffe and parrot and squirrel and wolf and all kinds of ungulates. I don't know the specific types. I see heron again. I see rabbit. I see coyote. I see a lot of life in this photograph, in this painting, this illustration. Beautiful. Gazing up, crying out. And there's the response on the hillside, on the mountain, with roses and flowers beneath the feet. This unicorn is rising up, the front hooves lifted up off the ground, head proud, spire tall, pointing toward the stars, tail just furling out in just great, great energy. Wow. Wow. What an image.
High up in the mountains, the hoary marmot, who called himself the Whistler, sat at his patrol, watching for enemies. As he faced the shifting wind to catch unfamiliar sounds, he heard the animals' voices and sent out a shrill cry of warning. All the mountain animals, large and small, were alerted. Among them was one who lived in secret deep within the mountain caverns. Many years had passed since he had been seen, and his magical horn had been forgotten. He, of course, was the unicorn. Hearing the whistler's warning call, he left his den and leaped swiftly from mountain top to mountain top until he stood upon the highest pinnacle. Far below, the unicorn saw the animals and he understood their distress. Rearing up his powerful body, he pierced the clouds with his sharp horn once, twice, three times he struck the clouds. Suddenly, lightning flashed and rain began to fall upon the land. It rained that night, and all the next day, rain fell on the animals and they rejoiced. The nooks and crannies of the mountains collected the rain and sent streams of fresh water flowing into the lake. The serpent looked on angrily and plotted against the animals while they drank and bathed playfully in the lake. Late that night, while some slept and others were busy with their nocturnal duties, he plunged into the lake and spat his deadly venom throughout the water. The next morning, as the nightingale sang, the animals came to the lake, but the water was dark and foul-looking, and none would dare to drink. Yeah, I wouldn't dare to drink this water. You can see a picture of the reeds in the background and the water is a little bit disturbed looking and this you know flared up serpent is spraying hissing almost looks like it's vomiting out a stream of noxious something and it's just bubbling troubled water beneath him it just looks like Foulness is the right word for this illustration. Again, the animals cried out in anguish, and hearing them, the whistler repeated his warning. At the sound, the unicorn left his cave. Far below, he could see the poisoned water and the animals huddled together forlornly. Slowly, majestically, he began to descend the mountain. As he came came among them, the animals at the lake stopped their shrieking and were silent. Some wept openly at his beauty. Others were shy and cast down their eyes. The serpent, coldly luminous, lay watching nearby. He alone held the ancient memory of evil, and it had given him mastery over the others. But now he felt his power ebbing away. Anger filled him, and he grew to enormous size. Suddenly, he coiled and struck the uniform from behind the unicorn from behind like a whip. This picture shows, I believe, the stalking of the unicorn by the serpent. There's the hillside. Several animals are featured again, observing as he descends. There's a fox. There's a lamb resting. 
uh, bear is visible again and deer and a couple of birds, a rabbit again. But chiefly there is <clears throat> in the brush at the base of the picture in the foreground is um, a serpent and walking down the hillside with head bowed is the proud unicorn. Oh my, this image just takes up the whole self, doesn't it? This is the struggle. This is the strike. This is the moment when the serpent attacks. And it is a struggle. He's wrapped up all around the unicorn. And the unicorn is bucking. Four hooves down on the ground and rear hooves lifting up in the air. More flowers are visible here and trees and rocks, but no other animals are present visible in this illustration and no words. In this next image, the unicorn is raised up, front feet uh, lifted, and uh, its head is pointing down, looking at the serpent who is hissing from below, and you can see a stream of some sort of fluid or vapor or energy shooting out of its mouth. They are still in struggle, and there are still no animals bearing witness in this image. Fear gripped, fear gripped the animals as they watched the battle. The serpent wound himself like steel bands about the unicorn's hind legs. A fierce war cry came from the unicorn as he struggled to free himself. His nostrils flared, and he reared up with his forelegs thrashing. Sharp cloven hooves came crashing down upon the serpent, whose stronghold began to weaken. The unicorn was gigantic in his mighty splendor. His spirit was ruthless, and his mane flowed like wind-swept waves, wind-swept wind flames. Over and over he screamed and struck until the viper was overwhelmed and powerless. Whirling around, the unicorn drew back and faced his enemy. Then his blue eyes caught the serpent's, and the evil one felt shame pierce his cold heart for the first time. He slithered away in fear, knowing that one of his own kind would have never spared his life. Finally, the unicorn came toward the lake, bent his proud head down, and plunged his horn into the water. Instantly, the lake gleamed pure, and all the animals began to drink. So this shows a moment where the unicorn kneels down and there's um, a cluster of what appears to be teeny tiny little white flowers, maybe like Edelweiss or something similar underneath his feet. There's a single rose blooming in the foreground. There's a couple of iris farther away. And then there's some, some sort of a bird watching them, maybe duck or pheasant. I can't quite tell what kind of bird it is, but the bird is bearing witness to this moment. Oh, maybe it is a dove metaphor for Holy Spirit. I'm not sure. Um, and then here we go. In this image we see um, unicorn ascending the mountain again. There are flowers scattered on the path of the mountain. There is heron or crane flying overhead. More birds gathered. Um, marmot, turtle, raccoon, mushroom, rabbit, deer, uh, zebra, 
Is that a wild boar I see? And a llama and a badger, perhaps. There's all sorts of creatures bearing witness to this moment. The unicorn gazed lovingly at each one, but his work was done, and he knew he could not live among them in the lower lands. Slowly he began to ascend the mountain. Where his hooves touched the ground, ancient flowers bloomed once more. As he walked, a little magic passed over the animals so they were able to talk again to each other as they had once long ago. When the unicorn reached the mountaintop, the animal saw his distant silhouette etched clearly against the warming sun. And this last image is just a very simple um, patch of leaves and a cluster of simple uh, white or cream-colored flowers, two, three, four, five petals on them. The time of forgetfulness passed. The unicorn was remembered. Springtime spread through the forest again. Everywhere leaves unfurled, fern fronds opened, and birds built nests. Masses of flowers appeared so that the forest floor shone with color and the forest resounded with joy. Warm breezes carried the scent of rich, moist soil, and dark green moss grew once more on the banks of the beautiful lake. So that is the end of the story, except to tell you a little bit more about the author and the illustrator. Mariana Mayer was born and grew up in New York City. As a child, she became fascinated by the famous unicorn tapestries on display at the Cloisters, the medieval art museum. She has drawn upon the legends that inspired the tapestries for the unicorn and the lake. Recently, Ms. Mayer translated and adapted The Adventures of Pinocchio. She also adapted the award-winning Beauty and the Beast and is the co-author of Dial's popular One Frog Too Many and a boy, a dog, and a f a boy, a dog, a frog, and a friend. Miss Mayer lives in Roxbury, Connecticut. Michael Haig was born in Los Angeles and was graduated with honors from the Art Center College of Design. He is the illustrator of the highly praised new edition of The Wind in the Willows. Among his other recent books are Michael Haig's favorite Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales and The East of the Sun and West of the Moon, which he retold with his wife Kathleen. Mr. Haig lives with his wife and two daughters in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Well, given that this book was published when I was a child, I'm not sure that they still live in those places or they probably have much more books in their pantheon of work by this point. Yeah, this is copywritten 1982. So that is a little bit from the Wayback Machine. So there you go. There's a little storytelling for um, anyone that's interested, but it's especially appropriate for when you have mixed company, uh, including kids, young ones, tender ears, tender hearts, tender minds, tender souls, tender spirits. And we're all kids at heart, right? Aren't we all kids at heart? So here's a little story 
for your kid at heart. The Unicorn and the Lake by Marianna Meyer with pictures by Michael Haig. Told to you by Hannah Smith LaFriends. So I'll say Chihololi, which means I love you, and Chukma Chipisilacho, which means hello, I will see you, as the Chickasaw have no word for goodbye. See you. 